Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome along as we gather uh, to worship God together. It's great to have you, especially if you're a visitor here with us this morning. Uh, if you are, it would be great to, to get to know you uh, better. So please do stay for some tea and coffee uh, afterwards in the back hall. Uh, as you may uh, be aware, uh, this week has been quite a sad week uh, for the church in hearing of the sudden death of Ken Holmes. Uh, he died uh, quickly but peacefully at home on Tuesday. Uh, Ken was a, a massive part of the church for over a generation. He was influential in so many things in church life. From the, the manual things to even building the disabled ramp at the front of the church building to the smaller details, such as uh, putting the pictures in the annual yearbook, uh, putting the, the weekly news together. He served as a, a deacon and as an elder for many years. He was a servant-hearted man. And he also invited Helen Walker to be part of the, uh, to be part of the team here, to be uh, the church administrator, of whom we would be, I would be lost. <laughs> without Helen and so we are deeply indebted to Ken for that uh, for Helen and the great work that she does but above all else we are mindful of his love his love for the Lord Jesus because I'm sure many of you know that his prayers were such intimate and affectionate prayers to the Lord Jesus because he loved them with a real heartfelt love he loved his saviour. Because even though Ken has died, he did not die without hope. He died with hope. Because even though each one of us will die, for those of us trusting in the Lord Jesus, we do not despair. Because we have hope. As the Apostle Paul says in First Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and 14, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Because of what Jesus has done, today we have hope we have hope in the face of death. And death is a sudden thing. Ken was with us just last week, worshipping with us. And now he is with the Lord in heaven. It is sudden. Because none of us know the day that we will die. None of us know that time. And so in that sense, we all need to be ready. To be ready to meet with the Lord. There is no more urgent need for each one of us today than to be ready, to be ready to see him. Because if we're not trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning, well, we have to ask, what will we say to the Lord? What will we say to God on that day, on that final day of judgment? Imagine, if you will, if your whole life was on this pen drive. If every thought you had, if every word you said, if every act you've ever done 
was written in this, was in this file. And I gave this file to the tech team to place on the big screen above us. How would you respond to that? How would you feel? Everything you've ever done. Because that is what the Lord will do on that final day. He will lay everything out, everything that we've ever done, said or thought. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. And we are not. We are guilty. Guilty, guilty. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy... He is rich in mercy, sent his son, and so that we would not die an eternal death because Jesus died in our place for our sins, that we can have hope because Jesus paid for our sins. And that, in a sense, is not really fair because Jesus was innocent in every possible way, without sin, the righteous one. But we are guilty. We are the unrighteous. We are the people who have sinned against God. And that doesn't seem fair, does it? But that is grace. That is the power of grace, as we have heard in Ephesians 2 and we'll hear in Ephesians 3 today. Because grace is not God helps those who help themselves. Grace is is God saves those who cannot save themselves. Our salvation is a gift. It is a gift of God. And all we need to do is respond to that. The A, B, Cs. We need to admit. Admit that we have wronged God, that we have sinned against him, and that we have gone against him. We need to believe believe in Jesus Christ that he took our punishment upon this upon the cross for all of our sins and commit commit to live for the Lord Jesus in light of what he has done for us the a and the b and the c to come to the Lord Jesus there is no more urgent thing in your life than to know god I'm just going to leave uh, some space just to, to pray into that. And so let us uh, just bow our heads in prayer together as we think of that, as we think of admitting, believing, and committing. Heavenly Father, I admit that I have sinned against you, a holy God. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive me for all the wrong that I have done, for all the sins that I have committed against you. But I believe in you, Lord Jesus, that you have come to take away my sins. I thank you, Jesus, that you have paid the penalty for my sins on the cross, that I can be forgiven. And Father, I commit my life, my whole life to you in light of what Jesus has done. Help me to live for you, to learn to read your word, to pray to you and to be part of your church. This I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Now, maybe if you've never prayed that before in your life, if you've never prayed that prayer of admitting, believing, and committing, then please do speak to someone that you came with today, maybe a a friend, a Christian friend, or speak to myself or Sarb afterwards. We would love to be able to talk to you further. And last week we heard uh, Adrian's preaching from uh, Ephesians 2, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10. We didn't call, cover all the chapter, um, but as, just to give you a summary of uh, chapter 2 before we hear, hear uh, chapter 3 being read to us. Uh, from uh, verse 1 to 10 of Ephesians 2, if you have a Bible, it spoke, as Adrian uh, mentioned last week, our stories are all the same story. That we, without Christ, have a story of death without him. But God, who is rich in mercy and in his love, made us alive in Christ. He did so to display the incomparable riches of God, the incomparable riches of grace in our lives, to make us trophies of grace in this world. And as a result, we, we do the good works that, that God has laid out for us to do. And therefore, from verse 11 to 21, we remember that when we were without Christ, we were without hope. Uh, because the people in Ephesus were, were Gentiles, excluded from the people of God. And none of them, and indeed few of us here today, are Jewish by birth. But now through faith in Jesus, we've been brought near. Jesus has destroyed uh, the barrier that divided Jew and Gentile. He has brought all people together through his sacrifice on the cross, through his blood. He has made peace where there was no peace. He's destroyed that, that wall of hostility, bringing two groups together to make one new humanity. And the purpose was to make this new humanity, to make peace between us and God and one another. And therefore, we're called to live in that peace as new, his new humanity, the church of Jesus Christ. And that church is built on the once and for all foundational teaching of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as that cornerstone. And now for all of us trusting in the Lord Jesus, we are this new humanity. We are new people built together like a, as a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. And in chapter 3, as we're going to hear read to us in a moment, it tells us of this amazing plan of what God is going to do with this new humanity, the church. Before Marion comes to read and Sarb comes to preach, let me pray for them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to to listen to your voice, that we would hear you and be transformed by you. We pray for Marion as she reads and for Sarb as he preaches. May we really hear the voice of the Lord Jesus and meet with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. 
In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, for ever and ever. Amen. Marion, thank you so much uh, for reading for us. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open. Be a great help to me if you're able to follow along. But before uh, I come to God's word, uh, let me just pray for our time. Uh, the psalmist writes... Uh, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey on my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Our Heavenly Father, do pray that by your spirit you will be at work in our hearts and our minds this morning. I pray that uh, you would uh, quicken our minds, you would soften our hearts, that you would make us teachable. Uh, Speak to us, shape and mould us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as Colin said, we're continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul opens his letter, do you remember, with uh, uh, the biggest view imaginable of what God has been doing and is doing and will do, and that how he's going to sum all of those things up in the Lord Jesus. And it's amazing that we have been brought in to that plan. And last week, Adrian uh, unpacked the first 10 verses of chapter 2, where we see that God moves those who believe from death to life. 
And that's the testimony of all believers that God has indeed brought them to life. And it's all a gift of grace, unmerited. Uh, Fanny Crosby wrote the hymn, uh, To God be the glory, great things he hath done, uh, which contains a wonderful line where she says, The vilest offender who truly believes at that moment a pardon from Jesus receives. An amazing gift bestowed on those who believe. And as we come to Ephesians 3, I'd like us to see three things. Uh, The mystery of Christ that's revealed to us in the first six verses. Uh, Secondly, God's manifold wisdom made known to us, 8 through 12. And then finally, the strength and power through the Spirit given to us, uh, verses 16 through 19. So firstly, the mystery revealed to us. Now, Paul told us uh, and the church in Ephesus that the promises that God has made uh, to the people of Israel weren't ultimately and exclusively for the Jews alone. And Colin reminded us of that. God had the Gentiles, that's us, not descended from the people of Israel, in view as well. And that's a bit of a conundrum. And the concern that the non-Jews had, the Gentiles, was quite simple. God had chosen his people for himself, the people of Israel. God had bound himself to those people. God had set his love on those people. He'd rescued those people from Egypt, driven out nations, given them the promised land and planted them in. The people of Israel were set apart as God's possession. And the question that the Gentiles were asking, and all of us should be asking too, is this. How, how could it be the case that the promises made to the people of Israel were now to be theirs as well? Had the unchanging God changed his mind? Knowing that, Paul begins chapter 3 this way. Take a look again at the first six verses. He writes this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's, Spirit of, Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, three times he mentions the word mystery. Did you see that in verse 3, in verse 4, and then again in verse 6? What is the mystery? Uh, The trouble is that in our time and place, uh, the word mystery uh, can mean something that's impossible to explain or understand. Uh, Maybe uh, you might think a mystery is a bit like I have every week when I come to the laundry room and I put in the laundry and there seems to be a sock short no matter what happens. It's a mystery. No, it's not like that. It's not a secret knowledge either, like uh, a knowledge that's revealed only to a very few people, uh, like Masonic handshakes. No, it's not a secret knowledge. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses for mystery, mysterion, literally means truths that are beyond human discovery. Truths that are beyond human discovery. But Paul is saying here that God has revealed what he is doing, but the precise means by which he's going to do that 
what he has planned and ordained, that can't be worked out ahead of time. Rather, that's something that God reveals to us. And once the mystery has been revealed, it's available to everyone. Everyone can see it. And the lens with which to see the mysteries by looking at the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. In verse 6, he says, This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The mystery, the mystery is that God creates this new humanity. And this new humanity is only possible because of the work of Christ on the cross. That Jew and Gentile now have equal access to the promises that God made through Christ. And look at what Paul says. He gives a threefold affirmation in verse 6. Gentiles are heirs together. They share the full inheritance. They are one body. They are full members of Christ. And they share together in the promise of Christ Jesus. They are equally loved. That's great news, isn't it? That really, really is encouraging. Anyone who believes, anyone who believes, irrespective of pedigree, social standing, education, nationality, race, wealth, whatever other metric you care to use, anyone who believes becomes a member of that new humanity. And that means there are no privileged people in Christianity. We can't say that because I can trace my family tree back to King David that somehow that makes me a more important Christian than anyone else. And being part of the new humanity, therefore, it's a great leveller. It humbles us not to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Because like everyone else in the new humanity, they're only in the new humanity because of what God has done for them through Christ. But it also affirms us. Because of what God has done in Christ, we have equal access to the promises of Christ. We are equal heirs and members of that one body. So that's the mystery. Secondly, let's look at God's manifold wisdom. Having described the mystery, Paul turns his mind now to God's manifold wisdom. Take a look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Look down. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do we see? Do you see that Paul tells us that God is making known all that he's done through Christ? Do you see that? Uh, That his eternal purposes, which have been accomplished through Christ, will be made known. We see that, don't we, in verse 10. And Paul has told us about them in the opening chapters of this letter. And indeed, the truth, the mystery of what God has done from before the dawn of time all the way through to the end of eternity is amazing. And that these things are made known, the manifold wisdom of God, as those truths that Paul has written about in the first three chapters of this book, as those are made known, the manifold wisdom of God is being revealed. The term manifold is quite a rich word. Engineers might understand it as many-sided. There's a multifaceted nature to it. Uh, Gardeners 
uh, would see the term as revealing many colours and great variety of flowers. Carpet makers would see the variety of textures. Musicians would see the tonal complexity of the music. It speaks of a depth, a richness, an overflow of different colours and complexity of notes. But did you notice the three small words in verse 10? Through the church. God's intent is that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Which is quite amazing, isn't it? He's telling us that the vehicle, the means through which God is going to reveal to the devil the dark powers of this present darkness and the evil spiritual forces, the means through which God's manifold wisdom is being released is through the church. God chooses to reveal his manifold wisdom in the saving of his people in and through Christ through the church. That the devil is being reminded of his defeat as the one new humanity is created. As people turn from the devil to God in response to what God has done through Christ, that causes God's wisdom to ring like a loud bell in the spiritual realms. A klaxon declaring the defeat of Satan. And that's both heartwarming and it's challenging. It's heartwarming that the devil's been defeated and God declares that loudly. It's challenging because what we do when we gather or when we choose not to gather really, really matters. How the body of believers call the church, what the church believes and how it behaves really matters. It has spiritual consequences which are eternal. And that's why our heart should break when we hear of churches closing. We should be deeply saddened when we hear of churches riven by disunity. We should be deeply pained when churches stop proclaiming the gospel. And our sorrow should be rooted in the truth that with every step that we take away from Christ, our part in the revelation of God's manifold wisdom is diminished. The church really matters. The church isn't a club that we join, like the golf club or a tennis club, where we pay our dues and we participate uh, to whatever extent is comfortable to us. The church is what God is using to declare his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm. And we, you and me, have been called to partner with God in that. We've been enlisted. Church, the body of believers, really, really matters. Now let me give you three quick reasons. Uh, All of them are challenging. So hard hats on, please. Uh, Do think about these uh, over lunch today or coffee after the service. The three things are what we believe really matters, coming together really matters, and how we behave towards one another really matters. So real quick, firstly, what we believe, what we believe really matters. Paul's been telling us in the first half of this letter all the things that God has done and will do. What Paul has in mind is that our minds should be filled 
with a right understanding of what God has done because our eternal salvation depends upon it. Right doctrine, if you will. Uh, Recently, uh, at dinner uh, with some people, someone told me that they'd been visiting a Mormon church. Uh, They enjoyed the gathering, they said. And they said, well, we broadly live the same way and I think we have the same values. I think that's more important than what we believe. I wonder, how would you have replied? Does doctrine matter? Well, think about it like this. Let's imagine we're telling someone how to keep warm. How to keep warm, how to keep the cold away. One person has an open wood fire. Another person has a gas fire. And a third person has an electric bar heater. They are all means of keeping warm. They all, if you like, have similar values. They all put out heat. They do the same thing. But our doctrine of water really matters. If you have an open wood fire, water's a good thing. If you have a gas fire, water's a neutral thing. If you have an electric fire, water can kill you. Your doctrine of electricity and water really matters. What we believe really matters. And the same is true for the core Christian beliefs. For instance, what we believe about who Jesus is and what he's done really matters. Jesus is the one true son who died to pay the price of our rebellion. By believing in Jesus, we have eternal life. But if we think that Buddha, Muhammad, the Virgin Mary, or the Mormons can save us and not Jesus, then we are going to face eternal separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. Only Jesus can save. Getting the core Christian doctrine correct really matters. What we believe really matters. And Paul's been setting out the core doctrines for us in chapters 1 through 3. And he's telling us those things before we get to a place where he's trying to tell us how we should live. I wonder if your life reflects that pattern. You have right beliefs which inform the way that you live. Secondly, coming together really matters. Uh, Paul tells us that God's plan through history is to create this new humanity. A people who love and trust in Jesus. A people who have been drawn into a new family. Into God's family. A people on whom God has set his eternal love. And shown that love in the most dramatic way. In sending his son to live the life that we should have lived. And then on the cross dying in our place. As a family with that identity... We should long to come together. This multicolored, multifaceted wisdom of God means that people from all walks of life, all places, all ages and stages, all social classes can come together. And it's as we stand together, as we come together to worship, we're testifying 
to the goodness of God. We're proclaiming to the powers and principalities of the goodness, the wisdom of God. We come together to show the devil that we are God's people and not the devil's. So when we choose to stay away, when we relegate church behind other things, maybe good things, when gathering as God's people, well, it just seems like it's hard work. Or we think a quick YouTube watch on a Sunday afternoon means we've done church. Well, we're denying the truth of God's call on our lives and his call on his church. So I wonder, does your life reflect God's call on his church? Thirdly, uh, how we behave towards one another, that really matters. Paul's told us that before God broke into our lives, we were objects of wrath, deserving to be cast eternally out of God's presence. But that through his amazing grace, his goodness, his mercy, we've been moved from death to life. Not because we merit it, but because of God's love for us. And that reveals God's strong love for each one of us. A love that we're called to show and reveal to others. But I wonder, are we at times unforgiving towards others? Harsh in our words. Exacting. Lacking generosity and kindness. Maybe impatient or harsh. Raising ourselves up. While putting others down. Gossiping about people. Or simply unwilling to help bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we always seeking to get our agenda met? Always feeling as if our ego is being hurt. If so, then we're really saying that the hope that we have in Christ isn't enough for us. It's not real for us. We're saying that having the boundless riches of Christ aren't enough or they're not real. We make God out to be a miser and not generous in his blessings and not generous in his promises. How we behave towards one another really matters. What do your actions and thoughts reveal about your love for one another. And as the church slips away from the truth that God's revealed, as the church loses sight of what it's for and who we serve, the spiritual life of the Christian in that in those churches is drained of life and is drained of vitality. What we believe matters, how we come together matters, and how we behave towards others really matter. It matters because the church, that's you and that's me, we have a major role to play in God's plan. And he's called us into that plan. Now it's hard and we can't simply try harder in those areas. We can't lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, spiritually speaking. What we need to live that way, we need Something more. 
And there is a way that we can long to be with God, to find ourselves, our lives ordered with God joyfully at the center. And that's what Paul shows us in verses 16 through 19, the strength and the power of the spirit. Take a look with me at verses 16 through 19. Paul writes this. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Here Paul's about to close the first half of the letter to the churches in Ephesus. And from chapter 4 onwards, he's going to be painting a picture of what all of this means for us as Christians. How our lives should be shaped, uh, how we should live, and it's all encompassing. It covers how the truths of the first three chapters affect our corporate lives as church, our private lives as individuals, our lives out in the public square and at work how our hopes and expectations are to be shaped, how we live as singles, how we live as husbands and wives, how we live as parents and children, as employers, employees, and how we should pray. All of that in the next four, the next three chapters. All areas. But the only way, the only way that the back half of the book makes sense, the only way that we can joyfully live as Paul describes is if the truths in the first half, the truths in chapters 1 through 3, burn brightly in our hearts. If our hearts are running on the operating system of Ephesians 1 through 3. Only then will we be able to joyfully live chapters 4 through 6. It's a bit like an hourglass all of the truths contained in the first three chapters at the top of the hourglass, and they all have to work their way through a small hole down into the bottom. They all have to move through, and they move through that gap, that restriction, by prayer. We see that in verse 16. Paul, Paul's prayer calls for the churches in Ephesus to be strengthened by the power of the Spirit, and so grasp the love of God. Do you see that in verse 18? Strengthened by the Spirit, and grasp the love of Christ. Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus that his prayer is that they would know that Christ dwells in their hearts by faith. That's in verse 17. And that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Because surely as Christians, uh, Christians uh, that they would know that Christ dwells in their hearts by faith. That's, that's what they know. It's what Paul's already told them. What they and we need to know and to trust is that God is not simply a visitor. He's not a short-term house guest in our hearts. Uh, the word that Paul uses for dwell is to describe someone taking up permanent residence. The God now, if you like, has the title deeds to our heart, and he is at work changing us. And the call is for the Spirit to strengthen us with power, to make that real in our hearts. Uh, Paul goes on, look with me at verse 17, where Paul calls us to be rooted and established in love. Quite literally, to be foundation laid in that love. To draw vitality and life 
from that love in a way that is unshakable, in a way that withstands trials, suffering, and testing. And this so that we might know how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of God. Again, verse 18. And again, Paul tells us that we need the Spirit's power individually and as God's people. What do we need to live the way that God calls us to live? We need the truth of God's love for us to be burnt into our hearts and be burning in our hearts. We have to see the beauty of the king who had all things and yet put them down to rescue rebels like you and me. And to do that, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And the only way that we're going to get that is if we have a vibrant prayer life. When our prayer life is strong, when our prayer life is vibrant, then we'll have the power from the Spirit to live for God joyfully. Without that, at best, your Christian life will be lived in black and white. At worst, your Christian walk will be dull and life-sapping. What we have to do is what Paul tells us in verse 18. We have to grasp Christ's love. Now, Paul uses a really interesting word there for grasp. It has uh, the sense of aggressive pursuing, a sense of uh, catching by effort to win or acquire. Uh, It's a, a term that's used to sack a city, to seize. The imagery is of there being such a burning desire for the love of Christ that that's all we can think of. We grasp the love of Christ. Imagine being so thirsty that all you can think about is water. Having your whole mind bent toward getting a drink. And when you get a drink, you seize it, you grasp it, you won't let it go. And that's what a vibrant prayer life will do. It will make the love of God tangible in your heart. You'll know that love in a way that a thirsty man knows what it is to slake his thirst with cold water. Uh, what does that look like? Uh, Daniel Steele was a British Christian minister in the 18th century, and he wrote a letter to uh, a friend of his uh, about his own prayer life. Uh, and he wrote this Almost every week, and sometimes almost every day, I feel the pressure of his great love that comes down on my heart in such a measure as to make me groan under an almost unsupportable plethora of joy. At such times, he unlocks every apartment of my being and flooded them with the light of his presence. The inner spot has been touched and its stoniness has been melted in the presence of Jesus, the one altogether lovely. That's available to us. We can know that. And in the case of Steele, he knew about the love of God. But in those moments, he was experiencing the love of God. The Holy Spirit was making Christ real, tangible. It was like a geezer suddenly exploding, erupting 
bursting forth in his heart. So he knew that. And my prayer is that we all would know that. But how, if we don't know that, how do we get that? How do we find our prayer life in that space? How did he do it? Steele would read the Bible and he would reflect on what it meant for God to love him. Read the Bible and reflect on what it meant for God to love him. He would take time to ponder at the ways that God didn't need him. He'd ponder the times that he'd realize that he hadn't done anything to merit the love of God. But that he knew God's love for him because Jesus came. And he thought about how he deserved to be cast away from God for all eternity. All the times that Steele had lived for himself and rejected God. And how terrible that rejection of God is. And then he pondered how great must the love of God be that he would send his only son to live the life that he should have lived and then die the death that he deserved in his place. And he took those truths and he drove them deep into his own heart. And that's true for you and for me to meditate on the truth that God's love for us is so great that he grasped us. His love overtook us. His love won us. His relentless and costly love sought us and brought us back. And the road that he brought us back along was soaked in the blood of Jesus. And that we're received by God, not as hired hands, not as hired hands, but as dearly loved children, as God's heirs welcomed into the bosom of the Father for all time. And the power we need is that of the Holy Spirit within us. Jesus tells us that Holy Spirit, he will come and he will dwell in us and that the Holy Spirit will glorify Christ and take what is Christ's and make it known to us, declare it to us. The Holy Spirit makes known to us what Christ has done. The Holy Spirit spotlights Jesus. He's not seeking his own glory. He's spotlighting Christ. So how is the power of the Spirit manifested in our lives? The Holy Spirit's power is manifested mainly as he shows us in God's word what Christ has done for us. To reveal, to remind, to declare to our hearts just how much we're loved by Christ. This is in my favorite city in the world. Uh, I love uh, driving up and down the Champs-Élysées, uh, to, especially at night, to see the architecture, the wide boulevard, uh, and it's just a glorious place. And right at the top, as you all know, uh, you have this building, the Arc de Triomphe. Have a look at the way that it's lit. Uh, the spotlights are placed in a way that don't draw attention to themselves. The spotlights perfectly show the beauty of the ark. They reveal its shape. The spotlights reveal its scale. They reveal beautifully the columns and they bring the sculpture and the facades out into sharp relief. 
The edges catch the light to reveal the balance of the symmetry of the ark. Even the shadows that the spotlights create serve only to emphasize the skill and craftsmanship of the masons. The spotlight reveals the glory of the ark. And in a similar way, the Holy Spirit spotlights Jesus to reveal his glory, his majesty, his justice, his compassion, and his love revealed in God's word. And as he does that, if we'll let him do that, we will see his love and his glory are set on us, set on you and set on me. The beauty of the one who creates and sustains all things, the one who's worshipped in the throne room in heaven, is for you and he's for me. We have to let those truths settle in our hearts. Allow the Holy Spirit to spotlight the Lord Jesus. Fill your minds with scripture. Meditate on the truths that you've read and pray those truths until your heart catches fire. So today, let the truths of Ephesians 1 through 3 settle into the very core of your being and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the majesty of Christ as you dwell on God's word. And to the extent that you're able to do that, your prayer life will grow and nourish you richly. We'll be people who are God's church, revealing the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, a people who love to gather together, a people who love one another. And living for God, as he calls us in chapters four through six, will be a delight, a real delight to us, not a chore. Because we can trust the one who died for us. We can trust the one who grasped us. He'll never let you down. He will never give you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much uh, for these truths. I thank you that uh, you do dwell in our hearts. Thank you that you are at work shaping and molding us. Father, I pray that we would be a people who would uh, dwell on your word. We would allow your spirit uh, to reveal the Lord Jesus more powerfully, more brightly, more brilliantly in our hearts. Melt away our stoniness. Uh, bring warmth where there is coldness. And help us to be a people who reveal uh, the truth of what you have done for us in Christ. Use us as ambassadors for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me close with the words from Ephesians 3, Paul's prayer from verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.